all places, Ephesians chapter 4. It's on page 1158 in the Pew Bible. If you're with us for the first time this Sunday, we're in a sermon series studying through the book of Ephesians. And right now we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, page 1158. Good verse 20. You, however did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are indeed awesome, holy, and majestic beyond our comprehension. God, the problem isn't that you're too small. The problem is that our vision is so clouded. And so, God, we desire to see you in your majesty. We know, God, that if we could understand what an awesome God you are, that we would trust you that we would uh, fear you and obey you, that we would love you and worship you with a fresh fervor. God, we confess that this week all kinds of little things have become huge in our vision. Uh, worries and conflicts and relationships. Th things that are small, Lord, have become huge in our eyes. And it's because we've taken our eyes off of you. And so, Lord God, we pray, heal our hearts. Cause us to see the greatness of the risen Christ this morning. God, we want to be a people who are confident, who are full of peace and joy and love because our hearts and our minds are filled up with Christ. And so fill us up this morning with yourself, God, as we study your word. We're excited to see what you're going to have to teach us. I pray, speak to this congregation. I pray that they would not hear Jeremy, but that they would hear Jesus, that through his word he might speak to his people. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. I remember uh, the very first time I ever saw shoplifting actually take place. I was in ninth grade, and uh, in my high school, they let us go off campus for lunch. Uh, if you had a car, you could go someplace. I, I didn't have a car as a ninth grader, so I would often walk with a huge uh, sea of students over to a local 7-Eleven. And so for about 20 minutes, the 7-Eleven was packed with kids, and they would all come and buy their stuff and leave. And, 
And I, I walked over one day with a couple of guys. I wouldn't say they were my friends, but I, I knew them. I'd hung out a little bit with them. And, you know, you just want to walk with somebody, so I sort of fell in with them. We got to the 7-Elevens filled with kids, and I lost track of them, and I got my drink and my food or whatever, and I was waiting in line to pay for it, and I was, you know, looking around for my friends, didn't see them, didn't see them, paid for my food, still didn't see them. I said, oh, I don't know where they went. Went outside, and they were outside. They had Big Gulp, you know, potato chips, cookies, and they had all this stuff, and, and I was like, so, so I just said to them, I was kind of naive as a ninth grader, and, and I said, you know, wow, I didn't even see you guys. You guys got through that line fast. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, these guys just stole that food. They, you know, oh, you just shoplifted. I, you know, I suddenly, and they kind of watched me like, oh, I, you know, the realization hit. You just stole the food. And then the thing that, that struck me was how easy it was, how easy shoplifting was. Not that I'm encouraging you to do it, but it, but it was so, <laughs> it was very easy. You go in at a time when the place is packed with people, there's kids everywhere. I mean, the guy, there's two guys behind the cash register just changing money. I mean, they're not keeping track of where every person is and what aisle they're on and watching them. And these guys just went in with this deluge of kids in this 7-Eleven, and they went over, they got a big gulp, and they got some food, and then they just, you know, walked out with it in their coats. I mean, it was so simple. They didn't have to go to their mom to ask for more money. They didn't have to save up their allowance. They didn't have to go with $3 and, like I did and say, let's see, now do I want to get this or that because I can't get everything. They could get everything they wanted. And I was like, wow, this is so easy. It just takes no effort to shoplift and to steal. But then I was struck with the other thought that I was a Christian. When I was in ninth grade, Christ had come into my life by then, and I knew the Lord, and, and so the Spirit was saying in my heart at the same time, this is not just illegal, this is immoral before God. And that's what I want to think about with you today, is this whole topic of how God relates to our resources, our financial resources, our possessions. Because when we become a Christian, everything changes. When I became a follower of Jesus Christ, I was transferred from one type of existence, the life under sin, to a completely different mode of existence, life and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and part of that transformation has to do with how I relate to money, resources, possessions, and basic needs. It, the, my relationship to Christ affects my whole life, including my pocketbook. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 28 of chapter 4. Paul says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So we have one negative command followed by two positive commands. The negative is, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. The positive commands are work and then share with those in need. And so what I want to do this morning is just look at those three commands very quickly. Now the first one is the negative. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Now obviously the Bible has a lot to say against stealing. Commandment number eight of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, there's a host of commandments in the Bible. In fact, uh, uh, stealing has been condemned in all kinds of cultures. The Code of Hammurabi from Assyria. Lots of penalties for stealing. American law, penalties for stealing. I mean, we just know instinctively that stealing is wrong. But just in case you don't, let's look at uh, some of the texts in Scripture. Find your sermon notes, which is this insert in your bulletin. 
It says Ephesians 4.28 at the top. And look on the front where it says, Thou shalt not steal. Just a few biblical texts that have to do with the issue of stealing. Exodus 20.15, that's the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. There it is, cut and dry, black and white. Exodus 21.16, Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he's caught must be put to death. Kidnapping is a kind of theft. It's a theft of a person. Exodus 22, 1-4, talks about restitution for theft. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. A thief must certainly make restitution, but if he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. If a stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back double. And, and we could go on and on with different examples of the Bible condemning stealing and, and giving laws for restitution. Now, obviously, stealing is wrong because it hurts people. It, uh, in an agrarian culture like Israel, if I were to take your ox, that may mean that you couldn't plow your fields and therefore your family might starve. So it was very serious back in those days to steal. But, but even today, stealing hurts people. Uh, my sister and uh, brother-in-law uh, just moved to a new place in Weymouth, and someone broke into their house two weeks ago. Uh, came in, stole a bunch of things, actually took her wedding ring. Uh, but amazingly, she got it back from a pawn shop. The guy went and sold it to a pawn shop, and the pawn shop called the police, and so we're really happy about that. But you know, it's not just that they stole her wedding ring. You steal a little bit of someone's peace of mind. Because, you know, here she's eight months pregnant now. She's got a, a one-and-a-half-year-old. And she's coming into her apartment, and there's that little voice in the back of the mind saying, is there going to be someone in here when I walk through this door? I mean, it steals, you know, your, your peace of mind. And it, it's a scary thing. Uh, so stealing is wrong, obviously, because it hurts people. We know that. But I think another reason that stealing is wrong is because it's a sin against God. In fact, all sin is a sin against God. Ultimately, all sin offends God's name in some way. Uh, look back at your sermon notes. <coughs> Proverbs chapter 30, verse 9. It's in the box at the bottom. Uh, the the, the uh, writer of Proverbs is worried that he might not have too much money or too little money. And he says, otherwise, if I have too little money, I may become poor and steal, and get this, and so dishonor the name of my God. So somehow stealing dishonors God's name. And so I, I was thinking about that. I'm like, now how exactly does that work? Because I understand that stealing hurts you, but what does stealing have to do with God? And I think that the reason it dishonors God's name is this. It's because when I take something that's not mine, what I'm saying through that action is that I can't trust God to provide for my needs. But what I'm saying through that action is God can't take care of me. God can't provide for me. And so I'm going to literally take matters into my own hands and I'm going to put it in my pocket because God is not Jehovah Jireh. He's not the great provider. I can't trust him, so I'm going to steal. And so I think that's why stealing is ultimately so hideous because it's casting aspersions on the glory of God. And so theft is not only a sin against one another, it's a sin against God. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, right, I agree. But you know, I'm not a thief, so check this one off the list. I'm all set. Well, not so fast. <laughs> think about the forms that stealing takes. Oftentimes when I think of stealing, I think of a professional crook. I think of movies like, you know, Ocean's Eleven and Catch Me If You Can and this new one out called The Italian Job. You know, we love movies about crooks who do some very complex plan to 
crack a vault that no one else can crack and steal money out of it. Yeah, there's something interesting about master thieves, and it makes for a good story. And so, uh, you know, we say, well, those are thieves over there. And, you know, I don't, I don't steal. But I think stealing can take lots of forms. You go into Blockbuster Friday night. You want to rent a DVD. You get the DVD. You go up to the counter. Your buddy's behind the counter. Hey, what's up? He rings up your DVD. Oh, dude, you got a $9 late charge. Dude, really? Oh, don't worry about that. I'll just take care of that for you. You know? And, you know, don't worry about the price of the DVD. I'll just give this one to you for free. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that stealing? Well, yeah, that's stealing. I mean, unless, of course, the guy behind the counter has been authorized by Blockbuster officially to erase accounts when he feels that he can. I mean, if he has that authorization, obviously it's not stealing. But chances are, I don't think he does. <laughs> so it's, it, it is theft. And you go, wait a minute, but it doesn't seem like theft. And I think the reason that it wouldn't seem like theft is because you're not really stealing from the guy behind the counter. You're stealing from Blockbuster, this multi-billion dollar you know, conglomeration. I mean, who is Blockbuster? It's this organization. It's this business. And there's people in charge of it that you've never met or you never will meet. And it's owned by some other larger conglomeration. So it doesn't really feel like theft. And I think uh, American life today is dominated by so many enormous impersonal institutions that, that it doesn't feel like a real person that you're stealing from. And it's easy to justify it. You're kind of beating the system. Really, by giving your $9 late charge a, you know, a delete, is it really going to affect anybody? Is the guy behind the counter really going to lose his job? Is the, is the CEO of Blockbuster really going to lose his seven-figure salary? I mean, of course he's not. And so you kind of say, what's the big deal? It's built into the cost of the company. But it's theft. It's a kind of theft. You go into the office storeroom and you take an extra pencil, take it home, and it's a kind of theft. You go, well, come on, you're nitpicking now. But, but it's theft. Again, it doesn't feel like theft if I take a ream of paper out of the office for my home use or if I use $10 on the, the office postage meter for personal use over three months. I mean, it doesn't feel like theft because, again, who am I stealing from? I'm not stealing from the administrative assistant, and I'm not stealing from the VP. I'm more just taking money out of the you know, office supply budget line item. You know, what is that? It seems so ephemeral and, and unreal. But it's stealing, nonetheless, in its various forms. Uh, perhaps maybe you've used online music trading. It used to be Napster. Now it's Morpheus and other ones. That's theft! It, it's intellectual property. It's copyrighted. And you say, well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, these big companies, they make so much money, and it's, it's stealing from the artists and and, and, you know, I, I, I want to stand up for the artists who aren't getting their money. And uh, Come on, give me a break. Like, before Napster came out, you were losing sleep every night over the injustices of the record industry. Hey, look, the reason you're using Napster or whatever, Napster doesn't exist anymore, but the reason you're using Morpheus or whatever is because it's free and you're cheap. And so you want free music. Let's be honest. It's a kind of theft. And I don't think Christians should be involved in it. Uh, we, we have to really be careful of the different ways that it can happen. Hotel industry in 1997 lost $100 million to people taking Kleenex, toilet paper, and towels. $100 million. I read another report. I w went online and was just kind of sniffing around. In the year 2000, there was a survey of retailers in America. And, and uh, according to that survey, uh, retailers in America in the year 2000 lost 13 
$11 billion to employee theft and another $11 billion to shoplifting. Think about how much money that just, just from theft. I know a guy in the church who uh, works in a warehouse. He, he, he does warehouse work for a major retailer. He's a guy in the back who brings out all the stuff when, when you buy it from the retailer. And uh, he, he was going to buy an air conditioner this summer. And he, he didn't get the Cadillac. He got kind of the mid-range air conditioner and paid for it. He got his employee discount, which was great. And, and then he's, he's going to, to pick up his air conditioner. Another guy who worked in the warehouse with him said, hey, you know, when you come around the side, if you want, I'll just bring out one of the Cadillac models for you. You know, it's so easy. I'm telling you, in this warehouse, this guy was telling me, there's no way they could keep track of it. And they wouldn't know where one air conditioner went or another. It'd be so easy. But he's a Christian, and so we had to say, you know, no, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. And, and he took the air conditioner that he actually paid for. It's, I, I think theft can take so many different forms. But at the core of it all is a lack of trust in God's provision. It's a lack of trust in God's provision. And faith is the antidote. When we pull up the weed of theft from our lives, I believe we will find the roots of unbelief dangling below it. And as Christians, God calls us to a higher standard. God calls us to a different standard. In a world in which uh, employee theft and shoplifting is built into the cost structure of companies, in a world in which you need the club and lojack, in this world, God calls us as Christians to live a different kind of life in which we uh, completely eschew and put aside all types of theft, where we try to live above reproach, not that we become legalistic. I'm not trying to make you, you know, paranoid and legalistic. But I'm saying let's live above reproach. Let's give honor to God and trust him with all of our financial needs. So that's the negative. Put off stealing. But then there's two positives. And I want to focus on these positives. Instead of stealing, what are we supposed to do? Let him who has been stealing steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So instead of stealing, I work and then I give. So first of all, it says, let me work doing something useful with my own hands. In other words, all of the energy, ingenuity, and creativity I used to put into theft, let me take all that energy, ingenuity, creativity, hard work, and put it into honest labor. God loves honest labor. God loves hard work. You find not only texts in the Bible that condemn stealing, but you find a whole bunch of other texts that elevate the value of hard work. Uh, God is honored when you work hard at your jobs, even if you don't like your jobs. It's an honor to God. Uh, again, look at the sermon notes. Here's just a few texts that talk about hard work. See down there, it says, go to the ant, you sluggard. This is my favorite proverb on work. Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. See that one there? Go to the ant, you sluggard. Wait, sluggard is just not a word we use. I love that word. We need to revive the use of sluggard. Maybe I'll start with my kids. Uh, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. God honors hard work. Uh, Proverbs 28, 19. 
He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. Or just one more from the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. I get this. This is great practical stuff. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. That's in the Bible. Mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you. Here's the reason. So that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. Or one last one, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-10. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he will not eat. God honors hard work. God honors consistent labor. Now, of course, you can take that too far, and there is such a thing as workaholism, in which we put work on such a high pedestal that we ignore our families, and instead of just providing for them, we totally ignore them as well. That, that's one other extreme that we don't want to go to. But having said that, generally speaking, God honors hard work. And again, that's important because we live in the culture of the quick fix. We live in the culture of immediacy. We live in the culture that looks at the old ideals of working slowly and saving over a lifetime, and, and our culture says, oh, come on. That's not the way anymore. You know, this is the, or used to be anyway, the dot-com era. Make a quick million. Boom, boom, boom. Go down to Mohegan Sun. I can turn the money over fast. You know, buy a lottery ticket. I got a system. I know that if I buy 10, chances are that I'm going to have a good one in that 10 because they're all in a row. There's got to be one in there. And we have all these games we play in our heads. Well, it's like it says in that text. Uh, he who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies, <laughs> those are all fantasies, will have his fill of poverty. Oh, God honors hard, consistent, diligent labor. Our culture values work based upon the paycheck. Our culture says big paycheck, important work, low paycheck, not important work. God does not look at the paycheck to value your work. The work that you do is not valued by God based on how much you get paid. God is looking at the way you do it, your diligence, your ethic of work, your, your integrity. And when you are that kind of worker, God honors it, whether you're working minimum wage or whether you're leading a massive organization and making six, seven figures. God is looking at your heart and the way you go about your job and the way you honor him. Because the fact is, tomorrow morning, some of us here are going to get up and we're going to go to a job that we don't really like. Some of you are going to get up tomorrow morning and you're going to go to a job that doesn't pay what you think it should be paying. It doesn't have the benefits that you would like it to have. You're going to go to a job tomorrow morning that you're going to do some monotonous things that you're like, oh, this isn't what I want to be doing. But you're doing it because you know that you want to provide for your family and, and, and you want to take care of, of your living needs so that you will be a self-sufficient person. And I'm going to tell you, if you will do that tomorrow morning, for the glory of God, that is as much worshiping the Lord as standing here Sunday morning singing a hymn. That if you will work hard for the Lord on your job and do whatever you do unto His glory, that is as much worship as standing here Sunday morning and singing a hymn or a chorus with the praise team and, and standing and listening to a sermon. Honor God with your hard work. He, he loves hard work. He made Adam and Eve to work in the garden. We were made to work. So let's be diligent kinds of people. The Protestant work ethic comes right out of the scripture. So you're Protestants, so work. Take on the work ethic and be hard workers. Okay, let's move on. Uh, don't steal, 
Paul says, let him who has stealing, been stealing those steal no longer. Instead, work doing something useful with your hands. And then the final step, so that you may have something to share with those who are in need. Not only does the Bible have a lot to say about against stealing and for hard work, it also has a lot to say about charity. Charity and giving are part and parcel of the Christian life. The opposite of stealing is giving. The opposite of thieving is charity. Uh, Listen to this now, listen to this. When I steal, I ignore your property rights. But when I give, I ignore my property rights. That's it. When I steal, I'm ignoring your property rights. But when I give to you, I'm ignoring my property rights. And we're called to follow Christ, who ignored his own rights who gave up his life for others. We're following in his footsteps. And so Christians, let's be a giving people. And when we look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, it's a very generous nation. Uh, In fact, charity and generosity was built into the laws of the nation. In fact, this might be interesting. Those of you who have a business background, I, I challenge you to do a little survey sometime. Take the Old Testament laws, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those laws that we think are so boring. Read through them again, but with the eye to asking yourself, what does the economic structure of Israel look like? Very interesting. And I think what you'll find is that Israel's economic structure was just saturated with charity and generosity. Whether it was the tithe that the Israelites had to bring in every year, or on top of that, the offerings they had to bring to the three festivals every year, or the free will and guilt and thank offerings that the Israelites brought in their own time, or whether it was the charity that they gave to the poor and the alien, or the money they gave to building projects, or on top of that, the year of Jubilee. You all know the year of Jubilee? Every 50 years in Israel, supposedly, that's how it's supposed to work, every debt was supposed to be canceled. All the ancestral land was to be given back to the ancestral families. Every slave was to be set free. This is incredible generosity. Imagine if every 50 years in America, everyone got a clean slate. It would be amazing. But that takes incredible generosity. But God built that into Israel's economic structure through his law. In fact, look at your notes. Uh, I I love this, this law. It's in Leviticus. Whoever thought Leviticus would be cool? It is. Look at page 3 of the sermon notes. Leviticus 19, 9 to 10 at the top. God says, when you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So if you can just imagine this scene, there's a big field and these Israelites are out harvesting. They got a a sickle, a crude sickle in their hand and they're going about the wheat fields and they're, you know, cutting the wheat and, and gathering it up and cutting it and then they're tying it in sheaths and throwing it on the ground. So you got these big bales. And as they're going, of course, some of the wheat is falling on the ground behind them. It's just laying there. They didn't gather it all. You can't catch it all. It slips out of your hand. And so what God is saying is don't go back and pick up all the little pieces that fell. Just leave them on the ground because right behind the harvesters would be the widow whose husband and male relatives have died, which is very devastating in that culture. And, and the orphan and the alien who's from out of town and doesn't have a job and doesn't have any land, and they're coming behind them, picking up those little pieces that are left over. I thought, isn't that such a beautiful picture of what Paul is teaching? It's a beautiful image for your lives that tomorrow morning you're going to go out and you're going to hit the fields. You're working hard. There's many of you who are laboring every day. God honors that labor. 
And as you work hard, remember to, to let some stuff fall on the ground. Don't be so tight-fisted with your resources that you're uptight about one little grain that falls on the ground. Give. Be charitable people. You know, leave the edges and the corners of your field unharvested so that the poor can take what they need. And so uh, whatever that means in your lives, do it. Do you have a house? Do you have an apartment? Open it up. Be hospitable. You say, I got a really small apartment. Okay, just have one person over. You know, fine. But you can fit one other person in your apartment, I hope. You know, open it up. Uh, do you have an extra car? You know someone who needs it? Lend it to them. It's something you can do. Well, I don't know. If I lend them my car for two months, what if they get in an accident? Yeah, they could get in an accident. Trust the Lord and be charitable. Let him take care of those kinds of details. God honors that kind of charity. Do you know someone in the church who has a financial need and they're in tough financial straits? Do you have any extra money? Give it to them. 20 bucks, anything. That kind of giving to someone who's in real financial need is such an encouragement. You say, well, I won't get a tax write-off if I give the money directly to them. Who cares? <laughs> Don't worry about what the IRS thinks of you. Worry about what God thinks of you. And just give to those who are in need. Another way you can give. You can give to... Uh, the church has a charitable fund. That, that's what I do. That, that's what I do with my tithe. In fact, I want to just show you guys what this is. Reach into the pew rack in front of me. Take out one of these little white envelopes. Everyone grab these. This is an offering envelope. I don't know if you even knew we had these. Some of you, when the offering plate comes around, you throw a few bucks in, whatever. But you can also give a little more strategically. And what you can do is you can put your offering, however much it is, in this envelope. And what you'll see there is then the names of different funds in the church. There's a general fund, and that goes uh, to keeping the lights on and, you know, paying the general and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever. Um, and then there's the mission fund. The mission fund is money that goes completely to overseas missionaries, all right? And then there's the building fund. That goes to whenever we have building projects, like the, the one that we have that we're sort of waiting for it to get some traction in front of the town. Uh, then there's the deacons fund. Do you see that? Deacons fund is money that's given to our deacons. It's a board in our church. And they take that money and they give it out to people who are in financial hardships. It's, it's a benevolence fund. And so you can, what you can do is if you're going to give 20 bucks, you can say, okay, 10 goes to missions, uh, you know, 5 goes to general, and I want 5 to go to the deacons fund. And you write it on there, and then our, our counters will route the money to the right places so that you can give a little more strategically. Uh, plus, if you use these envelopes, you get a tax write-off at the end of the year in case you're concerned about such things. So anyway, there's, I, what I'm trying to say is trying to give you options of ways that you can give to those who are in need so that we can put this into practice. Because Christianity is a giving religion. In fact, it's such a giving religion. I, I once heard a story about a pastor who wrote to an influential and successful businessman, and he was trying to ask this businessman to give some money to a worthy charity and the businessman did not want to give money. He was sick of being hit up for money. So he wrote a letter back to this pastor saying, you know, I will not give you any money. And at the end of the letter, very curt letter, he said, it seems to me that all Christianity is about is give, give, give. You know, the pastor wrote him back the letter saying, I want to thank you for giving me one of the best definitions of the Christian life I have heard in a long time. The Christian life is give, give, give. And you know why it's give, give, give? Because we worship a God who has done nothing for us but give, 
give, give, give, give. That breath you just took is a gift from God. The clothes you have on your back are a gift from God. The food that is even right now being digested in your intestines is a gift from God. This, this building is a gift from God. The fact that I, I have people who love me, that I have health, is a gift from God. Go outside in this beautiful day. I don't know what you're going to do today. Go outside and enjoy it. Look at the world around you. It's all a gift. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. It's a gift. Every moment is a gift from him. And he gives. And he, he causes his rain to fall upon the righteous and the wicked. He's such a big giver. God has given you so much. He's given you so much. And then, set that aside for a moment. He's also given us the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to the creation, he's given us the new creation. The Lord Jesus Christ was given to us. Even though what I deserve from God's hand is damnation. Even though what you deserve from God's hand is an eternity of hell for your sins and wickedness, you rebellious people, God has given you Jesus Christ. God has sent His own Son to die on the cross so that you might be saved. He gave you His own blood so that you could be redeemed. It's amazing. And then on top of that, He sent the Holy Spirit. Because even though Jesus died on the cross, I would never believe in Him because I'm so stubborn and rebellious and wicked. So He even sent the Holy Spirit to make me born again so that I might be saved, so that I could believe. And then once I believed, he brought me into this church. He gave me you. This is amazing. And, and, and he gave me his word. God, who created me, has spoken to me in this word. And God has given me a new life. And, and even though I keep wanting to go my own way, he just graciously keeps pulling me back. And then, we haven't even talked about heaven. I haven't even talked about what's coming. What's that first song we sang this morning? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived. You have no idea what he's about to give when you finally cross that line into glory. You have no idea what he's going to give you. And so from eternity past to eternity future, God's attitude toward you and me has been give, 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 give. Or to put it in theological terms, grace, grace, grace. Now do you understand why it's so unforgivable for someone to turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ? To turn their back on this God who's given you everything? Come to Christ. Put your faith in Him. To, to turn your back on Christ now would be the ultimate insult. The ultimate humiliation. And you would be worthy to be damned. So turn to Christ while you have time. As they used to say in the old days, turn or burn. Come to Christ. Put your faith in Him. And then we understand Luke 12, 32 to 34. It says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father in heaven has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide for yourselves purses that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lord Jesus Christ, Forgive me for my tight-fisted, self-centered mode of life. God, I, I, have, I believe I haven't even yet begun to understand what it means to give like you give. God, I pray, make me a generous person. Make our church a generous church. Help us to have hearts that are big toward those in need. 
And Lord God, we praise you this morning because you are the God who gives and gives and gives and gives. And God, we just come to you by faith to receive. I thank you most of all that the Lord Jesus Christ was given as a sacrifice for our sins and that anyone here this morning, no matter how dark their past or how broken their background, anyone here this morning can reach out and receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and be saved. And so, God, we take the gifts that you've given us. We have nothing to give you in return. We simply say, Lord, take our lives and use it for your glory. In Christ's name.